there's no doubt that the old politics of the two-party system is now gone and over. I don't need lectures from you or anybody on, on the Sinn Féin side of the house. We're very reluctant to kind of say what's red lines, but, but we do have to take climate seriously. There's going to be constant criticism, there's going to be a lot of disappointment, and whoever goes into government is going to be unpopular. Okay. Hello and welcome to the Your Politics podcast from RTE News. I'm Sandra Hurley and I'm joined by Green Party TD Brian Ledden, as well as our political correspondent Paul Cunningham. Brian, welcome to our bunker studio here. You were just admiring the facilities. Yeah, I've never been here before and it's uh, it's really interesting. No daylight. Uh, yeah, it's. Um, we find it works better for the guests, you know. <laughs> Not <laughs> no, at all intimidating. No natural light, no, <laughs> no windows. Exactly. Kind of disorientating, you know, <laughs> in, in, down in the bowels of Leinster House. Uh, but on a more serious note, because we did bring you in because you're a climate specialist within the Green Party, we wanted to talk about the, this big UN report out this week. Yeah. And it was kind of overshadowed because there's so much happening with the war in Ukraine. So the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change it issued a stark warning. And if you kind of boil it down, they're saying, really, we've got three years to save the planet. All, all that needs to be done needs to be accelerated. Yeah, I think all of us in the Green Party would consider ourselves climate specialists, uh, not just me, but I'll go on. It's but very it's really, modest. <laughs> it's really what we're, we're we're here for, to be honest. And um, yeah, it, like the report from Monday isn't telling us anything new, really. We we you know, we've been saying it for a long time. Uh, it's putting more science on it. It's putting um, you know more clarity on the challenge that's there as well. Uh, and yeah, we have three years to. Uh, get to peak greenhouse gas emissions. And then, incredibly, it's suggesting that we need to get to half of that by the end of the decade. So a huge, steep drop uh, within the next five years after 2025. Uh, And realistically, uh, the 1.5 degree Celsius uh, increase in global mean temperatures over the pre-industrial average, which is the basis for the Paris Agreement from 2015, uh, the report from Monday says the chances of achieving that now are very slim. Still possible, but very slim. Well, what do you think? I, I would agree. I think it's it's a, an absolute um, Herculean task for the world community to organise itself uh, and have that level of greenhouse gas cuts. Like we're, we're on course for a 3 degree Celsius, about 3.2 degrees Celsius mm. rise over the pre-industrial average. Uh, that's a catastrophic situation. Now, the rate of growth of emissions has actually slowed, which is actually a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel, uh, but still on course for that three degrees or slightly but over Do you think it's degrees. a negotiating position to a certain extent? It's like keeping 1.5 alive is, is some of the phrases that you hear from time to time at UN meetings, but maybe the, the more realistic thing is try and keep it under two degrees. Yeah, I think um, I think we have to try and keep 1.5 alive because like we're, we're at 1.1, 1.2 at the moment. We see the effects of that all over the world at the moment. We see it uh, at home here in Ireland as well with um, we'd the drought there a few years ago. We have more frequent storms. Uh, everybody knows, everybody accepts that climate change is real. It's happening in front of us and it's, it's more acute in the global south particularly uh, and other parts of the world. So uh, it was interesting last night actually in, in the Oireachtas that the carbon budgets, which are a significant milestone in our effort, that they pass through the Oireachtas without uh, going to a vote. And that's a but, measure But not of everybody supported them, did they, Paul? I know you were watching this as well. Well, sort of, I was watching it while also working on a Ukraine story, while also trying to prepare for, <laughs> for Morning Ireland. So I, I had one eye rather than both yeah. on it. But yeah, I mean, it was interesting in, in the chamber, 
um, because there were eight TDs, um, six from the Rural Independent Group plus two other independents who were seeking a vote. But the last count, Corla, Catherine Connolly said because there were fewer than 10 or less than 10 on that basis it went through. But it has to be said that um, parties like Sinn Féin had indicated that they were going to back it. So um, it, I think it was... Uh, Friends of the Earth, Oshin Coughlin, saying it was significant that you had effectively all party agreement that this was the way to go. But if you imagine that's sort of the broad outline of the idea, in other words, how much emissions you can uh, have, setting a ceiling for emissions um, for year on year, um, how you come to reduce them once you get into the nitty gritty, then suddenly it becomes very real in political terms. And there's very big differences between um, what Brian and the government is saying and what some of the opposition parties are saying. And what about the backbenchers within your own government? You know, we do hear, obviously, there's been a lot of focus on the carbon tax recently. Some Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael backbenchers wanted to late, but clearly for the Green Party, this is a deal breaker. Yeah, and it is. It absolutely is a deal breaker. Uh, we would say that there needs to be clarity around what the carbon tax increase actually is. It's €1.50 uh, on the average household's gas bill per month. Uh, do you think the government has... Uh, a given ground here by not explaining to people that this is a small increase, as it may be just not been communicated well. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that's fair to say. And I think the opposition probably has exploited the situation. But the reality is it's €1.50 uh, per month on the average household's gas bill. Uh, and then and what people are, what society is getting for that is climate action. It's, it's funding the retrofit programme uh, and also it's funding... Uh, targeted measures to prevent fuel or reduce fuel poverty uh, in the the third. And what do you think about that? Decils. I mean, I noticed that Dr. Cara Ostenberg was saying that part of it, another dimension to the carbon tax, was that it was supposed to send a signal to people that you um, use less um, fossil fuels based energy. But he said that signal isn't there anymore because the price of energy is increasing. And her view that it wasn't wise to increase it now, echoing what Sinn Fein is saying, echoing what people before profit are saying, which is that you know. People are already finding it too tight to, even if it's a small amount, to stick that on top. Yeah, it's, I disagree, a huge regard for Dr. Augustenberg. Uh, she's really brilliant and a great communicator when it comes to climate. Uh, but I really disagree with the, uh, that point. I think that when you agree on a strategy, a 10-year strategy, which is what the carbon tax is, uh, you don't uh, change your mind uh, about it at the first crisis. Uh, and the reality is that, you know, we are going through a crisis at the moment. All going well, we'll come out of that. Uh, and, you know, what are we going to do then? Or are we going to say now we'll bring it back? Uh, we can't have that flip-flop uh, approach to uh, these strategies. So um, I would disagree. I think we've the signal is has been sent and it's set down in the programme for government. It's a €7 Euro per tonne increase in uh, the carbon tax through to 2030 and that'll ultimately it'll be about 100 euros per ton at 2030 uh, and it's critically important that everybody knows that's where we're going and we don't um we don't fall at the first hurdle we have to stay the course in this one and what about the government is now telling us that there's going to be offsetting measures but we don't know the detail can you shed any yeah, light on that up, come on there's tell us yeah give us no a one scoop else is here. listening it's just yeah. us three of us here yeah nobody is listening the offsetting measures are already there actually so for the one euro 50 uh, per month but it's going to have to be something new well, I mean, and I think so this, this comes back to the communication that we probably haven't communicated that there is actually a lot of offsetting measures there already. And so fuel allowance is a 20 euro per month uh, increase on the fuel allowance for, for those um, who are on that. There's the qualified child payment is 12 euros per month. Living loan allowance, 12 euros per month. 
Um, and the income threshold for the working family payment is, has been increased by 40 euros a month. So these are the offsetting measures. This is what the carbon tax... Are you saying are, that there's yeah. no new offsetting measures? So it's not in my gift to, to provide extra offsetting measures. I, I think measures, that's the problem, but, isn't it? I mean, yeah. those have come before. We've had budget increases, but they've been eaten up by inflation. People are expecting more now. And uh, the Taunish and the Taoiseach are laying the ground. They, they are... They have been, you know, growing that expectation. And, yeah, and the, I mean, they've also been saying we can't, um, we can't insulate people indefinitely. Like that, the well will run dry. You know, we, we, the state needs revenue to provide services uh, to to enact climate action. That costs money. If we constantly um, just try and insulate people from the reality of these uh, these energy costs, um, you know, we're going to we're going to hit a brick wall pretty quickly. So um, the increase. And the carbon tax is modest. Uh, it is more than offset for those who are in the lower income thresholds. Uh, and that's backed up by the ESRI. I mean, they've come out and said this is progressive in the round because of all those targeted measures. And Paul, um, we are expecting something on the carbon tax in terms of offsetting measures. Can you tell us, do you know what it is? Because would you agree that the expectation is there now that there is going to be something new? Almost certainly. And um, even though Fine Gael's parliamentary party meeting is completely private and we have no idea what was going <laughs> no, on. No, no, don't know anything about that. At the Fine Gael private, <laughs> the Taoiseach was um, signalling that um, something was on the way and that the offset would be greater than, his words, allegedly, mm. um, than the actual rise in the carbon tax was it's going like to be. It's like you were in the room, Paul. Um, and we know that, for example, it's public knowledge that um, John Paul Phelan, one of the Fine Gael deputies, was trying to put a motion in this regard. We equally know that someone like Fianna Fáil's John McGuinness was going to raise it at the Fianna Fáil Parliamentary Party, something that he did. So within government, on the back benches, there was a concern about, I think, A, the strategy itself, but probably be more importantly how it's being communicated and how opposition parties are playing on it. And um, I think there is a sense in government circles that they're on the back foot and that may be part of the motivation as to why they feel they have to do something more. We're hearing loads of different options. Government sources saying everything's on the table. We're not telling you, but you know, maybe the PSO levy, maybe that's another little thing that they can do as opposed to VAT where we heard they'd shut the door um, from the European Commission earlier on today. But maybe one, one thing I did want to just pick up on this because we're talking about this big 10-year cycle and question of funding and, and Brian is uh, sort of... Um, the chair in relation to climate action at the Oireachtas Committee, one of the things we continually hear from, say, parties like Sinn Féin and, and um, people before profit is that when it comes to, say, something like insulation, which can have a significant impact, that um, the scheme, while far more generous than had been the case, um, I think it's 80% for €3,000, 50% for anything above that, with the possibility of a, a low-interest loan as well, that that still precludes a lot of people from being able to insulate their homes, that it effectively rewards those who have the cash rather than the people who don't. And on that basis, the government should be far more ambitious. And if the government was more ambitious, then you would find parties like Sinn Féin and people before profit rowing in behind you. Can you not be more generous? I think it comes down to the communication. Again, uh, we had the SEAI into the Joint Directors Committee on Tuesday. I'd encourage anybody who's interested in this to uh, to uh, to look at it. There was a three-hour interrogation of the, the senior officials there, and uh, they actually did allay a lot of the fears of uh, government members and opposition members. And I think perhaps that message hasn't got out there that uh, the this isn't actually a transfer of... Uh, wealth from less well-off people to more well-off people. 58% of the retrofit budget this year uh, is going towards the uh, the social the warm home scheme. 
and the Better Energy uh, Upgrade Scheme, uh, which is for the lower income uh, categories. So it's it's categorically false that uh, that it isn't uh, benefiting those uh, cohorts. But I do think it comes down to communication. It's up to the government to get it out there that uh, you know this is incredibly important. Uh, we have no choice here with retrofitting. Like there's about ten percent of our greenhouse gas emissions comes from uh, the residential heating sector. Uh, we have to retrofit five hundred thousand homes up to B two standard or greater by by twenty thirty. It's uh, as uh, Mr. Walsh, who's the CEO of the SEI, said, it's the biggest infrastructural project in the history of the state. Now, I would argue that maybe the offshore wind one that we're also embarking on might be the biggest in the history of the state. Uh, these are monumental tasks. The the progress, there's a narrative out there that the SEI's uh, progress on the retrofit rollout isn't uh, isn't good or isn't successful. Well, the basis uh, is that, there's, that only, there's only two companies who would be able to do a full deep retrofit. Two, and, and they fully expect to have 19, I think, by the end of the year, and they say they're on course. You but know, we hear that there's 70 companies interested in putting offshore wind, um, but nothing's happened, and the one that was closest pulled out. Yeah, and it's uh, the offshore wind thing. You know, this government has probably done more. Um, and I think it was one of the the representatives of the sector said this government has done more in the last nine months than the governments of the last nine years in relation to offshore wind and particularly the marine area. Was it planning, a high bar, Brian? Was it a high bar to pass that? Yeah, and for, you know, the state didn't pursue uh, one of its great advantages which is its wind resource in, yeah. the, in the last 10 years uh, and arguably we should have you know if you think back to the 1970s the oil crisis which i absolutely don't remember but i've read about it um ireland took a very conservative approach back then uh it built a big coal-fired power station down in in west clare money point uh, the danes on the other hand who have a much lower wind resource than we do said okay we've got this let's try and develop it they developed a is a 10, 15 billion euro industry, manufacturing industry in Denmark. They were brave. They took, you know, they looked at the reality of where energy was going. That was nearly 50 years ago. But we don't have the resources. If you look at, say, a country like uh, Norway, which engaged in something like carbon capture and storage and spent a couple of billion doing its plant in Mongstadt and they had to mothball it, there were leaders and turned out to be a total disaster and lost loads of cash, but at least they had the carbon resources to do it. You know, that isn't really where Ireland's going to be, is it? No, and you wouldn't compare Ireland and Norway in terms of resources, but you would compare Ireland and Denmark. Uh, and Denmark took a strategic decision four decades ago. Uh, Ireland didn't. It took a very conservative path. Um, we should recognise uh, the resource that we have and be confident that we can develop it. It will be very hard. There's no question about that. And we would probably, in my view, need to look to Europe, and we should be saying to Europe, in my view, that the resource that we have isn't necessarily for our own domestic needs. So that's the 80% that we talk about by our renewable electricity by 2030 but actually to provide clean energy to Europe, get Europe off fossil fuels, uh, particularly the big industrialized nations like Germany and Italy and, and France to a lesser extent, yeah, and, um, and do that via increased interconnection and also by developing a, a green hydrogen economy. And that's, that's not going to be easy, but it's what we should be doing, it's what we should be saying that we're doing and being very uh, explicit about it. That's the, the right path to take. Okay, I want to go change tack here, Paul. Um, a story that has sort of uh, grown over the last couple of days into quite a controversy now, I think, is around the Chief Medical Officer, Dr. Tony Houlihan. He's going to Trinity College 
as a professor of uh, public health, we are told it's a secondment, but uh, oddly, the department is going, he's never going back to the Department of Health, but the department is going to pay his €187,000 salary plus his pension. What's the latest on that today? I suppose the first thing is that there's a, a consensus politically that um, Dr. Tony Hoolan is a very smart guy and that the idea of this professorship actually makes sense. Um, where the controversy lies is in the detail. There was two stages. One was that we heard that he was um, stepping away as CMO and moving to Trinity. And then a couple of weeks later, we find out it's an open-ended uh, secondment, which is being funded by the Department of Health. And there was questions about, well, how did that come about? And why wasn't it a public competition? And who signed off on it? And those questions have only grown louder. So much so that in the Doyle today, um, Leo Varadkar, the Thornish, said that um, it would have been preferable when the announcement was being made that all of the details were given. And he said that, um, I think, Michael McGrath, the public expenditure minister, wasn't best pleased and that he's now getting on to the Department of Health <coughs> about the matter. At the same time, the CMO himself was in um, an Oireachtas Committee on Health and he was saying that um, he was stepping away from the CMO role, but he wasn't resigning. Um, but at the same time, he wasn't didn't have any intention of going back. So there was just this, there was a a sort of a a confusion about it. So even though he was giving more information about it, it rose more questions. And uh, Sinn Féin's David Cullen announced at the end of it that he needs to hear from um, the Secretary General of the Department of Health, Robert Watt, from the Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly, and also from Trinity College to just to get that information out there for once and for all. And there is this question as to who signed off on this within government, within the Department of Health, because the Health Minister, Stephen Donnelly, said yesterday that he didn't sign off on it. Well, there was a private meeting of the Oireachtas Committee on Health, and therefore I wouldn't know what happened at the Oireachtas Committee on Health. But at the Oireachtas Committee on Health, apparently um, the CMO Good sources, um, Paul. <laughs> said that um, there was an engagement with senior officials at the Department of Health, not just with regard to the job, but wider issues around public health, but that the job was part of it. And that's where uh, it was done that um, the CMO said he was involved in those discussions. And when pressed, he said that ultimately the person who would have signed off on it was um, the Secretary General of the Department of Health. Um, But that word ultimately doesn't necessarily mean that Mr. Bott was involved in the tricacies of it. What you have is question marks. And Mm. that's why Sinn Féin and no doubt all other parties will be coming back and saying we need to know more. So, Brian, you're in government. Mm -hmm. What's your view on this? Um, I can't disagree with anything that's been said there. And um, uh, I think there is a a serious question here about transparency and how public money has been spent and how people are being appointed. Uh, I think it's absolutely right to investigate that. There is a lot of questions uh, and uh, I think that we should get answers to those questions. Can I ask you about, uh, we've been hearing about, obviously there's many Ukrainian refugees coming to Ireland. We think 20,000 already, the Taoiseach has said, but there's a concern. That was at a parliamentary now. party meeting, which we wouldn't know anything about. No, no, no. I don't know never, how, where, where we got that from. Nothing from the Green Party parliamentary party meeting. <laughs> oh yeah, well, I know we, we did a while we back. Need to work on those. We're we did a while back. In Fain, I think. <laughs> um, there is a real concern, though, about the accommodation and where where it's going to be possible to put everybody. We're now hearing that beds could run out by next weekend. What are you hearing in Limerick, in your area? Yeah, it it it. I mean, I'm meeting Ukrainian people. Uh, on the streets and you know they're in Dublin as much as in Limerick um, I think we are in a very dire situation and it's it's likely to get worse um, and I know the government does have plans uh, there there's uh, I, I, this is maybe I'm breaking the omerta of the 
big party parliamentary party meeting, but that there are plans, uh, emergency plans to to house people. But the uh, you know that's only for the next few weeks. What happens after that as the flow uh, becomes even greater, as we might expect that it will. Um, and I think so that's, we're in a very difficult situation. I think There's you're no right. I mean, like, I mean, there's two things. One is a, a question of sort of perspective. If you look, I was looking at the data yesterday in relation to Poland, and Poland has admitted uh, 2.5 million people um, cross their borders from Ukraine. And at the same time, I think it was the International Organization of Migration was saying that there's 10 million people displaced inside Ukraine. Yeah. We're all hearing that the um, Russian army is building up for yet another offensive in the southeast. And if they push west, then that 10 million figure could flow into Poland, which means the numbers increase right across Europe and also with regard to ourselves. So on the one hand, dealing with 20,000 doesn't sound as difficult as whatever the Poles feel, but it seems that it could dramatically get worse depending on circumstances in in Ukraine. I think it could dramatically get worse. Uh, We shouldn't be under any illusions about that. There's a possibility that uh, things will go the other direction as well. And we would certainly hope that the war comes to an end very quickly. Uh, But even with respect to Putin's strategy of pulling back from the north and pulling back from Kiev and focusing uh, the Russian efforts on the east, uh, I have heard stories anecdotally of, of some Ukrainians going back because they, they actually feel that parts of Ukraine are more uh, stable that now than they were a few weeks ago. And, now, mm-hmm. you know, that needs to, to be looked at. But uh, listen, let's, let's, this is it's the a, biggest, it's a huge this is huge, it's the biggest displacement yes. of people since World War Two, uh, And we have to think on, on that level. And it's, you know, it's, you know, the initial story has passed, the, you know, the, the horror of the invasion. Um, but I think it is know. a challenge for the government. I mean, when we saw um, the Taoiseach Micheál Martin standing in the Doyle in reply to President <coughs> Zelensky, he spoke about how the Irish commitment would be there and he said, our home is your home. I mean, to say those words, that means something more than just being in a tent. Yeah, it does. Uh, it does. Uh, but today we're know, hearing about warehouses being looked at, and clearly yeah, that's going to be probably camp beds and warehouses. Clubs, it's not um, ideal. And, you know, and uh, the Green Party minister Roderick O'Gorman is at the centre of those so, discussions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just from speaking to him, like he, you know, he he is very solemn about it. He, he he's saying that it's it's we're facing into a very very challenging situation. And um, do you think one he that we should be the person before. who's taken the lead on it? I mean, surely the minister for housing. If we're talking about homes and housing, the Minister for Housing... I think Dara O'Brien is knocking heads together on Monday. He's uh, gathering, I think, various stakeholders and having a sort of a forum to discuss it. So they they are... He's yeah. aware of it. He says it's doable, but the numbers he put out he, last week were astronomical. He said 35,000 over the next five to six, six years, years on top yeah. of the 33,000 a year houses but that I, we I, need anyway. I know it's clear that what the government wants to try and do is make this separation between housing need here and then... Um, Ukrainian people arriving in, who many of whom only want to stay for as long as the war is, and while they're here, could offer fantastic things for the economy. You've got an awful lot of very talented, hardworking people who want to, um, you know, be part of our society. But I'm just wondering if, if those two tracks is possible to keep going, or you will have some form of competition at some times. Because if there is competition, then that signals danger. Uh, yeah, definitely. And in uh, any period of flux, which this definitely is. Uh, you know, there's there's gaps and, you know, things slip through the gaps and, you know, that's that's the reality of uh, of the situation we're in. Like, it is a serious uh, European war. 
Um, and we just have to manage it as best we can and, you know, throw everything at it. And I think just the point I was making a moment ago is that the, the initial story has passed, you know, and uh, I, I'm not sure people realize that there's another story coming, mm -hmm. you know, and a story that, um, you know, we all talk about expressing solidarity for Ukraine and we do, but solidarity now might mean some very hard decisions at home. OK, we're going to leave it there for this week. Thanks for listening to uh, the Your Politics. First of all, um, how scared are Limerick people of the show that Waterford is putting on? Because uh, <laughs> they're looking pretty good, I have to say. <laughs> um, uh, I heard they won the league, was it? Yeah, yeah they did. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I, 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 I'm not understanding what this reference is either. I'm just smiling along going, OK, this is something yeah, sporty, is it? <laughs> the real thing happens in the summer, Paul, just to, to yeah. say. Yeah. Okay. yeah, yeah. don't think we were too interested in the league. <laughs> So. <laughs> That's what the loser always says. Yes, <laughs> yes. Okay, well, thank you for listening to the Your Politics podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review.